Hello, and welcome to Sinobabble Chinese History Podcast. This is episode six of the 20th Century China series. In this episode, we're turning away from the cultural and intellectual world of China's May 4th movement and going back to the mayhem of the warlords. This episode mainly focuses on how the Nationalist Party and Communist Party came together to launch an assault on the warlords and reunite the country. We're going to cover the circumstances that led to this uneasy alliance and also begin to cover its eventual and completely predictable disintegration. This episode is going to get slightly bogged down in details, as if that hasn't been the feature of every episode, but hopefully by the end you'll have a clear idea of what happened on China's political and military scene in the 1920s. For the purposes of the narrative continuity of this episode, it will probably help to split China into North and South. Uh, North and South are very rough divisions. It's not like every single area was touched by calamity and warfare. It's not even as if, you know, the majority of people knew what was going on with the country's politics. Most foreign enclaves also managed to survive relatively untouched and some even thrived, Shanghai being a great example. If I can get it together, I'll probably try and make at least a mini episode on culture in Shanghai in the 1920s, as it was genuinely an interesting time when many of the sites that we see today in Shanghai or we see in sort of old photos were built, and the culture that developed there was very unique in China at that time. But for now, we're sticking with the warfare and the bloodshed. So in the north, the warlords that we discussed in episode four continued to wreak havoc in an effort to consolidate their power. By the early 1920s, the size of the warlord armies had swollen to around 1.5 million, and many wars and battles continued to rage between the different groups until 1927, with people constantly switching sides. Wars were fought for various reasons, for regional control, to have control over a particular trade network, or to take over an area of significant economic influence. However, most wars were fought for control of the national government in Beijing. Now, you're probably wondering why anyone continued to bother with the facade of the Beijing central government of the Republic of China throughout this period. To be honest, that's what I wondered too when I first found out that not only did it still exist in the 1920s, but different warlord factions actually actively battled to get themselves represented in the central government and, in turn, have the central government bestow upon them some legitimacy. There are three main reasons why the central government managed to hold up until 1927. Firstly, the outstanding voices of public opinion in China continue to believe in the republic, mainly because they wanted the republic to just work. By China's own historical standards, the constitution was a very newborn baby and parliament had barely gotten on its feet before being knocked over by corrupt warmongers and power-hungry bureaucrats. They wanted to give the republic and constitutionalism a real chance, mainly because they wanted to give China a chance. All the other major powers in the world had constitutions, and also some combination of what Chen Duxiu had termed Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. If China was going to take her rightful place on the world stage, it would need to reinvigorate public interest in the constitution, and that meant hanging on to the idea of a unified China with a central government by their fingernails, if necessary. The other two reasons were more pragmatic. Despite the obvious disunity of the country by the early 1920s, most foreign powers only recognised the authority of the central government. In the eyes of the world, there was one unified China, its capital was in Beijing, and it had a central government with a president, a 
prime minister and a parliament and that was that. Foreign powers always referred to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, even when dealing with local issues. And even warlords had to go through the central government approval process when it came to local appointments that involved foreign interests or property rights. The final issue had to do, of course, with money. As a result of foreign recognition, the central government was able to borrow huge sums from foreign powers using China's natural resources as security. These foreign loans allowed the government to borrow at home as well, from banks, bonds and by leveraging debt. These funds usually went towards funding the military of whichever warlord had his people in power at the time, or just lined the pockets of top politicians. Actual bureaucrats and state employees like teachers and police officers often went without pay altogether, and giving and receiving bribes became very commonplace. So the central government remained of strategic importance for asserting general dominance in China, despite the fact that it did almost no work to improve or even manage the livelihoods of the actual people of China, and if anything, was a serious contributing factor to the mayhem. To give you just a taste of the confusion that reigned in the period, this is a brief timeline of the major wars fought between 1920 and 1927. Just in case you needed a refresher on who all the main warlords and different cliques were, Jiang Zuolin represented the Fengtian clique, Wu Peifu represented the Juli clique, and Duan Qiri represented the Anhui clique. So, in 1920, the Juli and Fengtian cliques teamed up to oust Duan and his Anhui clique from the central government, dividing the territory gained between the two of them. Wu of the Juli clique and Zhang of the Fengtian clique then promptly turned on each other in 1922, which resulted in a victory for Wu and with Zhang and his Fengtian clique driven back into the northeast in Manchuria. However, in 1924, the Fengtian clique struck back, this time not only in alliance with the Anhui clique, but also with Feng Yushang, a Juli general who had defected to Zhang's side, possibly due to internal rivalries with Wu Peifu. The Juli clique was defeated, Duan was able to return to the head of the central government once again, and Feng Yushang demanded, kind of as an aside, that the last emperor, Puyi, leave the Forbidden City, which he promptly did with his family, uh, and they went to live in the Japanese concession in Fujian province. After Feng Yushan had tried unsuccessfully to stage a coup against his new warlord general, Zhang teamed up with Feng's old warlord general, Wu Peifu, to drive Feng out of the scene altogether in 1926. The situation as it stood in 1927 saw Zhang Zuoling's Fantian clique in a position of most power relative to everyone else, allied with the central and eastern provinces and in control of the central government. Despite the fact that that was obviously extremely clear, if I've been an organised person, I've put up a page on Sinobabble.com so that you can take a look at how the map of territories covered by these different groups evolved over the period. As we discussed in a previous episode, the only thing that seemed to extract temporary alliances was the relative strength and political power of one of the other cliques at any given time. The details of the wars and who was on whose side, just they're not really that important. What is important to note is that by 1927, the northern part of China was no closer to unity, no dominant power had emerged, 
and none of the warlords trusted each other enough to make a meaningful alliance against any major force that would invade. Which is exactly what happened. Okay, so this is where we turn our attention to the south of the country and to some characters that we haven't really spoken about since episode 3. Much like in the north, an alliance was forming between different groups in the south, though it took a while to get off the ground and overall it was less backstabby. So the last time we saw Sun Yat-sen and his nationalist party, they'd just been booted out of the capital and the whole northern part of the country by UN Shikai. And the KMT had been outright banned. Never one to be put off by a minor setback, however, Sun Yat-sen quickly set about trying to set up a nationalist government in the south. In 1917 and again in 1920, he tried to set up government in Canton, capital of Guangdong province, that would essentially be loyal to him and elect him president of the so-called republic without really questioning it. He even teamed up with Jiang Zuolin at one point to launch a campaign against the central government in Beijing in 1922, but that went bust. You see, Sun had been allowed to try his political experiments in Canton at the behest of the warlord Chen Jiangming, an internationally respected general who controlled the whole of Guangdong province. Chen was too focused on getting the province back up and running to get too involved with Sun's political ambitions, but at some point he fell afoul of Sun's main henchman, Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang never seemed to me to be the most upstanding of characters, even before some of the more reprehensible actions he took, which we'll be discussing in the next episode. After the death of his boss Chen Qimei at the hands of Yuan Shikai, Chiang basically fell into a life of debauchery. His words, not mine. After divorcing his own wife and basically abandoning his child, he remarried a teenager who he had trapped in a hotel room and then infected with either gonorrhea or syphilis. Uh, These two things happened on separate occasions, but this isn't a particularly redeeming fact. He ended up working for Sun as his main military aide, and Sun trusted him, which was all that really seemed to matter. In any case, as their northern conquest became increasingly hopeless, Chiang Kai-shek convinced Sun that his real enemy was actually Chen Jiangming, and that they should return to Canton to oust him. It was Sun who was ousted, however, forced to flee his presidential palace in Canton in June, travelling up to Shanghai with his wife, Chiang, Chiang's wife, and whoever else from the party could join them. Again, never one to back down in the face of adversity, Sun managed to scrape together enough cash to fund mercenaries to oust Chen Zhongming from Guangdong. Chen's own position was by no means secure, and the deed was completed by January 1923. Sun returned to Canton in February. So Sun Yat-sen was now back on track to set up a secure political regime, raise an army, and take back the north, reuniting the whole of China under his republican banner. Easy enough on paper, but Sun had real problems to deal with, the first and most pressing being the functional running of government in Canton in order to raise his much-needed funds. Canton can be described at this point as sort of a lively mess. Almost one million inhabitants benefited from the new factories and foreign trade links that meant a fast-developing, liberal and modern city. These new and successful businesses were a vital source of funding for Sun's government, as his government continued to compete with military forces for tax funds. 
These were the same military forces that Sun had originally paid to secure leadership of Canton on his behalf. The people of Canton also suffered under pressure from Sun's supposed mercenaries, who the government failed to control as they extracted high fees and even looted from stores and robbed locals at gunpoint. Sun's Guangdong was also under constant attack by allies of Wu Peifu and Chen Zhongming throughout 1923. Despite its almost two decades of government and political influence, the Nationalist Party had neither the local control it needed nor the national influence it deserved. The party was arguably left to others to run, while Sun sought alliances from former friends in the US and Britain. Both refused to help, either politically or financially. It was at this point that the Soviet Union swooped in to persuade Sun that the answer to all his problems was to form an alliance with the communists. Having already issued a statement of nominal cooperation between the KMT, that's the nationalists, and the Soviet Union in 1923, the Soviets sent yet another Comintern agent named Borodin, real name Mikhail Grusenberg, to cement the relationship further and push for a unified KMT-CCP front against the warlords. We've just spoken about the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in the last episode, so I won't bother going over that again. I'm sure you've been paying super close attention thus far. The Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, had actually pledged in 1922 that they would form an alliance with the KMT, the Nationalist Party, in order to reunify the country. Maring, the Comintern agent who had presided over the founding of the CCP, had encouraged this unity to fight the feudal warlords, pointing out that once they were defeated, the CCP could launch the proletariat revolution for workers and peasants against the national bourgeoisie. It was a good plan, but it's not to say that this alliance was unilaterally supported. While some members of the CCP appreciated the progressive nature of Nationalist Party politics, they didn't want to necessarily enmesh themselves with the KMT. After all, the communists' main doctrine was the taking down of the bourgeoisie capitalist, meanwhile the KMT was run and funded by bourgeoisie capitalists. Apparently Chen Dushou, who was leader of the CCP, was downright hostile towards the KMT, as well as pretty much any other political party in China at the time. It didn't help that Chen Dushou had most recently worked for Chen Zhongming, while Li Dajiao, the other leader of the CCP, had been seeking reconciliation with Northern Warlord and Sun's sworn enemy, Wu Peifu. But in reality, the CCP needed the alliance. In the first place, party membership in 1922 was a whopping 130. That's not 130,000, it's just 130 people. That number had ballooned to 300 by 1923. Hardly a mighty force to be reckoned with, but they still had the support of the Soviet Union, which had its own motivations, to be sure, but it was enough for the CCP to gain access to the force and legitimacy of the KMT, whilst also building up membership for the CCP. The CCP's main goal of reunification of the country happened to align with the KMT's own goals at the time, so in this respect they were at least aiming for the same thing. Their other aims of organising the urban proletariat and helping the rural poor also meant that they would need to rely on the KMT's organisation and size to get a grip on China's new burgeoning industrial workforce. Strike action was difficult to pull off, expensive to fund and hard to control, 
as a failed railway strike in Wuhan had proved. While the CCP had encouraged the strike leaders to take action, they were no match for the forces of Wu Peifu, who controlled the railway line from Wuhan to Beijing and drew a lot of revenue from it. Wu Peifu ended the strike with the beheading of the strike leader, which convinced many in the CCP of the need to ally with someone who could take on the northern warlords who currently formed their biggest obstacle. The KMT, on the other hand, desperately needed support if they were going to make any headway in the country. Both the KMT and the Soviets wanted to check Japanese power in the north of the country, and the manipulation of most of the other warlords by the Japanese meant that there was no one in the north the Soviets could trust. The KMT also needed funding to organise their party and government, as well as military equipment and training for a proper standing army. None of this could be achieved without the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union's main condition was the acceptance of the CCP members into KMT ranks. Okay, so we now know that they both really needed this alliance. So how did the Soviet Union go about solidifying the alliance between the two parties, whilst also making sure that the CCP could remain its own separate identifiable body within the KMT? Well, Borodin's main task when he had arrived in October 1923 was to help Sun with the reorganisation of the party along Leninist lines. He was to instruct the KMT to garner as much support from the masses as possible, as well as to give its unconditional support to the workers' movement. In return, Borodin helped the KMT create a new constitution and reorganise the party along lines that mirrored the democratic centralist structure of the Bolshevik party. The party was to organise itself into five levels, national, provincial, county, district and sub-district and decisions made by committee at a central level were to be adopted unconditionally by all members. Sun's three people's principles of socialism, democracy and nationalism became the guiding ideology of the party, and Sun was made leader for life. Borodin also helped with the recruitment of new members in new urban centres and the bureaucratic structures that were strengthened and formalised. Along with other commentant agents such as General Bloicher, sorry for my bad pronunciation, Borodin also helped the KMT with organising their army. A new academy was set up on an island 10 miles from Canton and was headed up by Sun's close friend Chiang Kai-shek, who had just returned from military training in Moscow. Eager to maintain a balance, or perhaps just to ensure that the Soviets had a plant in the running of the military, Borodin made moves to place a communist within the new military organisation. Freshly arrived from France, Zhou Enlai was put in charge of running the political department of the Wampoa Military Academy. I think Zhou Enlai is the first communist that we've come across who's also really important after 1949, besides Mao, of course. So try and like remember that name if you can. At the same time, Borodin worked to instruct the Communist Party. So CCP members were instructed to form a block within – They were to join the KMT as individuals, whilst also retaining membership and overall loyalty to the CCP. The CCP as an organised party was also to retain its separate identity, solidifying the nature of the relationship between the KMT and the CCP as fundamentally uneasy, and setting up for, spoiler alert, the inevitable and gruesome failure of the alliance that we'll explore again in the next episode. The CCP was to make moves from within the KMT organisation, influencing the KMT to support an agrarian revolution and land redistribution, 
preventing the KMT and warlords from creating alliances against the CCP and maintaining a separate identity and working to organise workers and peasants. The CCP managed to get a firm hold of the KMT's propaganda machine. This is because the KMT members were more preoccupied with the more prestigious and high-paying roles in, for example, foreign affairs departments or Sun Yat-sen's personal office, whereas CCP members found themselves more comfortable in propaganda, organisation and labour roles, and those roles that involved communicating with and organising peasants. They produced newspapers and pamphlets such as Vanguard, which constantly criticised the organisational and moral foundations of the KMT and directly contributed to a left-wing, right-wing split within the Nationalist Party. This becomes extremely important a few years down the line, so bear in mind the development of like a conservative faction and a liberal faction within the KMT. And yes, Mao Zedong was there at the time. He was actually head of the propaganda bureau, as it happens. It's worth noting that Sun Yat-sen received many notes of warning about both the CCP and Borodin. His overseas backers claimed that Sun was being Sovietized, and when he denied these allegations, many questioned whether he knew Borodin's real name, referring to his Jewish heritage. Sun, to his credit, replied that he did know Borodin's real name. It was Lafayette. High-ranking members from within the party protested the inclusion of the CCP altogether, claiming that Chen Duxiu was scheming to stir up trouble between the capitalists, workers and peasants to speed up his goal of communist revolution in China. Sun pointed out that Chen didn't actually have anything to do with the party's organisation and couldn't very well manipulate people at will. It was the Soviet Union with whom he was cooperating, and part of their agreement was the inclusion of the CCP, but the Soviets were also obligated to cooperate, and any funny business would lead to the immediate expulsion of any rogue elements, including Chen. Also, despite being indispensable due to practical reasons, the Soviet presence in the KMT ranks was actually a boon overall. The organisational efforts were paying off, as by 1924 the KMT had a total membership of over 25,000. The KMT had made a show of standing up to foreign powers, for example by threatening to seize the foreign-controlled maritime customs service and thus undermining the power of Beijing, which relied on the security of the customs house, to back several loans. The plan to take over control of the maritime customs service failed, but... Sun had made a name for himself as willing to stand up to foreigners and for being fiercely nationalistic and actually fighting on behalf of the Chinese people. The Wampoa Military Academy was also progressing nicely, with the first class of 800 cadets graduating in 1924, thoroughly indoctrinated in Sun Yat-sen thought and almost completely loyal to Chiang Kai-shek. They managed to win a series of victories in late 1924 and early 1925 against the warlord Chen Zhongming. A less glittering example was the suppression of the Merchant Corps, a militia set up by Cantonese merchants in opposition to Sun's heavy taxes on them. The Wampoa cadets ended up setting Canton's commercial sector on fire, putting down the rebels but equally tarnishing Sun's reputation. Either way, armed with Soviet guns and advised by Soviet specialists, they managed to obtain an arsenal of weaponry and slowly but surely prepare for moves on a national scale. It was too early to celebrate their progress, however. On his way to a conference in Beijing, Sun Yat-sen took a side trip to Japan in November 1924, when he was suddenly taken ill. 
Rushed to Beijing, he was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and died on March 12, 1925. Suddenly, all bets were off and questions were raised as to who would or could take over Sun's role. By this point, Sun was more than just the leading figure within the Nationalist Party. He was the Nationalist Party and he had developed almost a cult of personality around him. So it was doubtful as to whether anyone could ever really take over his mantle. There was little time to ruminate over this question, however, as tensions in the country began to culminate to boiling point, pushing the KMT and CCP inexorably towards the revolution they had been planning for. On May 15, 1925, Chinese workers in Shanghai, who had been locked out of a Japanese textiles mill, gathered to protest and demand to be let back into work. They broke into the mill, smashing machinery, and were then fired upon by the Japanese guards. Much like the May 4th movement, news of the injustice spread and mingled with other tensions, including government collusion with foreign powers and outrage over the arrest of protesters. A series of student demonstrations and workers' strikes culminated in a movement on May 30th to demand the release of six student protesters. The demonstrators went from angry to murderous, whereupon a British police inspector demanded that the crowd be fired upon. 11, or perhaps 12, people were killed and over 20 wounded. It was the spark that lit the revolutionary flame. Anti-foreign protests spread throughout Shanghai, and British and Japanese residents were targeted in other major cities across the country. A firefight in Canton left 52 Chinese dead. Nationalism was at its height as more and more Chinese flocked to the Wampoa Academy to join the ranks of KMT and CCP soldiers. Both the nationalists and the communists realised that the time to act had finally arrived. The political organisation of the KMT was effectively taken over by a man named Wang Jingwei, a close confidant of Sun's who had actually drafted his will and been at his side when he was dying. Though Chiang Kai-shek was responsible for the KMT's recent military victories, he was not yet prominent within the party's political system, emphasis on the not yet. However, this also happened to be the point at which the left-right split within the KMT started to show. See, told you it would be important. A high-ranking leftist, Li Zhongkai, was assassinated in 1925. Although the perpetrators were never caught, it was thought to have been orchestrated by conservatives within the KMT. Factions began to appear in different sections of the party, such as the Society of Sun Yat-senism within the Wampoa Academy, a not-too-subtle cover-up for an anti-communist league within the military. Then there was the Western Hills faction, which emerged in late 1925, a group of KMT members loyal to a man named Hu Han Min, another high-ranking KMT member who had been manoeuvred out of power after the death of Sun Yat-sen, and who heavily resented the presence of the CCP in general, let alone within the KMT. The attempt of the Western Hills faction to have all communists expelled from the party in early 1926 began a tug of war between the right wing of the KMT and the leftists and communists within the party that was to last until late 1926. In March 1926, Chiang had the captain of a communist ship, the Zhongshan, arrested when he interpreted its rival just outside Wampoa as an attempt to kidnap him. The tensions within the party were starting to hold up the whole revolutionary cause, and compromise had to be reached, else risk jeopardising the whole operation. 
The basic solution was to curb the communists within the Nationalist Party, whilst also preventing the right-wing KMT members from arbitrarily attacking and expelling leftists and communists. Borodin, Wang Jingwei and other high-ranking members, including Chiang, compromised to make this happen. One move was to expel the Western Hills radicals from the KMT and keep an eye out on other right-wingers that were left behind. The other measures limited the power of the CCP and the left. Communist representation in high-level KMT bureaucracies was limited to no more than a third. KMT members could not join the CCP, and Wang Jingwei was forced on holiday to Europe, almost securing future leadership of the party for Chiang, but again, not quite yet. Okay, so the political wrinkles are temporarily ironed out in 1926, and all other preparations were in place. The KMT was finally ready to launch its military campaign. This campaign to reunite the country under the Nationalist Party is commonly known as the Northern Expedition, which lasted from 1926 to 1928. And again, if I've been organised, there will be some sort of map on the website that shows the course that the Nationalist Army took. The KMT had managed to consolidate its control over Guangdong province after a long struggle, whilst also convincing generals from neighbouring Guangxi province to join their efforts to reunite the country bringing the total number of KMT allied troops to around 150,000. The army was renamed the National Revolutionary Army, or NRA, it's kind of an unfortunate acronym, and was split into eight divisions, some of which were to stay behind and guard the base areas in Guangdong while the rest of the army moved northwards. The National Revolutionary Army faced three major organisational problems that had to be sorted out before beginning the expedition. The first was money. This problem was resolved pretty much single-handedly by T.V. Song, Sun Yat-sen's brother-in-law and Harvard graduate who had returned to Canton and risen through the ranks to become finance minister for the KMT government. By 1925, he'd increased revenues for the KMT government to around 3.6 million yuan per month through a series of tax policies and by floating bonds and other economic strategies to raise money. The second issue was that of political organisation. The Northern Expedition was not only a military campaign, but a campaign to win the hearts and minds of the Chinese people, as it were. Communist and nationalist political workers were organised to move ahead of the army, organising peasants and workers to help them disrupt local industry and transport for incumbent warlords, persuading them with promises of better treatment and higher wages, a tactic that, surprisingly, had never even been considered by any of their rivals. The final problem was that of supply. China still lacked major rail and road systems, so moving military supplies across the entire country would prove difficult to say the least. Large numbers of transport labourers were organised from disaffected peasants and striking workers from Guangdong and neighbouring provinces, while plans were made to pick up the resources from retreating enemy armies as the NRA moved northwards. This part of the plan rested very heavily on the success of the actual military campaign. The military tactics for this campaign were worked out by Chiang and Comintern advisor General Bloiker, with whom Chiang had been working for several years. The NRA had three main targets to take out, Wu Peifu in central China, Sun Chengfang in eastern China and Jiang Zuolin in the north and Manchuria. 
We haven't met Sun Chungfang before, but he becomes important in this part of the story as he has control over the richer eastern coast parts of China, as well as the historic capital of Nanjing in Jiangsu province. The plan was to split the army into three units. One would move up to Wuhan via the Shang River, thus taking out Wu Peifu's major base in Hunan. One would move up to Jiangxi via the Gan River, and the third would travel to Fujian to capture the Zhejiang capital of Hangzhou, not far from Shanghai. The decision would then be made as to whether the army should consolidate its central China base of Wuhan, which, if you remember, was where the 1911 revolution first broke out, or to move east and make Nanjing the capital whilst also trying to secure Shanghai. The campaign officially launched in July 1926. I'm not too into army stats and military campaigns and things like that, so I'm going to be a little scarce on the details for this part. If you're really fascinated by military tactics and the breakdown of different units and how specific battles went down, I recommend you read the chapter on the Nationalist Revolution in the Cambridge History of China by C. M. Wilbur. There's also a book called The Northern Expedition by Donald A. Jordan, which is obviously very heavy on the conquest details. But for the sake of time and energy, I'm going to keep it quite brief here. Almost immediately after launching the expedition. Wu Peifu started sending forces south through Hunan to block the KMT's advance, but his troops couldn't match the bravery of the revolutionary forces, and Chang's advance went almost exactly according to plan, with the tri-city area of Wuhan falling under KMT control on October 10th, 15 years to the day since it had become the cradle of the Xinhai 1911 revolution. The Jiangxi campaign went less smoothly. With critical cities proving stubborn and casualties heavy, but Chang managed to secure the city of Nanchang, the capital of Jiangxi, in late 1926. This gave the NRA the boost it needed to all but confidently stride into the coastal province of Fujian by mid-December. In less than half a year, the KMT had brought seven provinces under their control, along with several generals from these provinces who had defected to the nationalist side. Meaning a more impressive, if less organized, military force. The guidance of Soviet advisers, as well as the political dedication of the NRA soldiers, had paid off, as the KMT forces became renowned for their bravery and high morale in the face of the direst of circumstances. The winning over of locals through fair treatment and anti-imperialist political proselytizing had also paid off big time. As these locals often welcomed the NRA forces with open arms, giving them food. Acting as porters, and even colluding with them to sabotage warlords or even join in the fighting themselves. The total population of these provinces was around 170 million, which definitely caught the attention of several foreign powers, including the British, who until that point had been hedging their bets on Wu Peifu. The time for the final thrust had arrived, and the nationalists had an important decision to make. The leftist arm of the KMT was snuggled away in Wuhan in central China, while Chang was in Changsha in the east, preparing to make a final push for Shanghai. Wang Jingwei had arrived back from his sojourn in Europe and had been re-elected head of the party's central committee, and he had made the executive decision to keep pushing north, team up with other disaffected warlords, and take the politically important Beijing. This is where the Moderate rightist split with the leftist communists in the party really started to show.
Chiang became suspicious that the leftists in the party were trying to get rid of him, and to be honest, he wasn't wrong. Chiang even travelled to Wuhan to encourage the leaders there to press on to Shanghai, but his ideas were rejected and he returned to Changsha embittered and furious. The leaders in Wuhan, meanwhile, stripped Chiang of his political powers and made plans to mobilise army units to encircle him and try and get rid of him for good. Borodin especially was worried about a breakdown in the party and the possible expulsion of the communists, as the rivalry between Trotsky and Stalin back in the Soviet Union was reaching a fever pitch and Stalin's campaign would not have been able to withstand a blow like that. Chang didn't hang around to be tossed aside like a used tissue, however. Sorry, I couldn't think of a better metaphor. He started negotiating with the Japanese and warlord Jiang Zuolin to hold off while he moved into Shanghai. He contacted the heads of the Bank of China in Shanghai and the Shanghai Chamber of Commerce to secure financial backing so that he could mobilise his army without relying on the consent of the main KMT heads in Wuhan. The Wuhan leftists in the KMT were furious and horrified when they found out about Chang's dealings, particularly with the Japanese. And they denounced Chang as a criminal, but that didn't stop him. By early 1927, Chang had captured Hangzhou, the capital of Zhejiang province, and was only 100 miles away from securing his prize of Shanghai. Which will be the topic of discussion for the next episode. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. I know it was a little heavy on the facts and the figures and the names and and possibly less stimulating than the last episode. But I thought it was really important to cover how the warlord's reign actually came to an end. Um, In the end, it wasn't a huge decisive battle or a major political breakthrough that allowed the KMT to take over the country. As it usually is with these sorts of things, it was more of a gradual creep, decided on a battle-by-battle basis, and relied more on the attitudes of the population, as well as influential individuals, than on the actual ideals of the revolutionary movement. I also wanted to cover the developing relationship between the left and the right in China, because that becomes the foundation for pretty much everything we're going to talk about from here on out for at least the next five episodes. So in the next episode, we will cover what happened between the communists and the nationalists once the fight for national unity was finally won and the warlords were defeated for good. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I hope you tune in then. 